Welcome to Myanmar in a Potshell, the podcast that puts current developments in Myanmar into context. My name is Rodion Ebekhausen, and the title of this episode is Hardened Fronts, the Narrow Space for Diplomacy in Myanmar. I would like to discuss the topic with our first guest, Charles Petrie, who has close to 30 years experience operating in contexts of famine and conflict, much of it with the UN. He is the former coordinator of the Myanmar Peace Support Initiative, former UN Assistant Secretary General, and UN Resident and Humanitarian Coordinator in Myanmar. He is also the author of the International Review of the UN's Failure in Sri Lanka. And Scott Marcial, our second guest, is the Oxenberg Roland Fellow at Stanford University's Walter H. Shorenstein Asia-Pacific Research Center and a senior advisor at Bauer Group Asia. He retired from the U.S. Foreign Service in April 2022 after a 37-year career that included assignments as ambassador to Myanmar, to Indonesia, and as ambassador for ASEAN affairs. He also served as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs and in U.S. missions in the Philippines, Vietnam, Hong Kong, Turkey, and Brazil. Scott is the author of the new book, Imperfect Partners, the United States and Southeast Asia. Thank you for joining us today, and let's start with the discussion. On April 23rd, 24th, Former UN General Secretary Ban Ki-moon visited Myanmar as deputy chair of the so-called elders. He met Min Aung Lai, including the inevitable picture with him. Some days later, Ban Ki-moon virtually met Mo Zou, the deputy foreign minister of the NUG. So was this a meaningful diplomatic initiative in your eyes? Actually, I was thinking Scott should stop because it's more... <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I, 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 um, I, I would say with all of these visits, it's what's the result? Uh, and then does the result merit uh, the cost? Um, um, I think the result we haven't really seen, um, the cost or, or the, the, um, the cost of, of engaging with the junta when, you know, there, there, uh, there is great resistance on the part of much of the international community to legitimize them is, is a real one. So um, in, in a way, I, I think this sort of typifies or, or exemplifies the, the dilemma that the UN is facing, uh, that the UN, and the UN has lost or has been unable to, to, um, to capture the credibility of the international community and the confidence. Uh, and to a certain extent, uh, you know, Ban Ki Moon seeing um, the, the the senior general in Yangon is is bringing with him his UN baggage, and and because the UN does not have the confidence of the international community, well, there's there's very little space for the UN to engage in in a, in in a, in a confidential or meaningful way. If they engage, the act of engaging is in itself a demonstration of the UN position and their UN has very little opportunity to, to justify the, the, the optics and the cost of engaging. But basically, I, I would say that, that in, in, the, in answering that uh, we don't know what the, the benefit of uh, engaging was, 
but it's very clear what the, the, the cost of Ban Ki-moon's engagement is. Okay. Um, yeah, but some people might say or could say maybe, um, yeah, at some point you have to somehow start talking and we don't know where the result will come from. Sometime you have to start. So would you, would you say there is, this was a, could be a start or a seed for something later or? I mean, I guess that the question, and, and, and that's why I think maybe Scott and I are, are here with you, is whether this is the moment to engage. You know, I, I've just come from the border. One of the strongest uh, messages and, and, and observations to, that, that came out of this visit is that it's probably, the dialogue, it's not, the, the moment is not ready for dialogue with the junta uh, for many different levels. There, there's the fact that the people uh, are being subjected to uh, uh, horrendous uh, military operations. It's not only the four-cut strategy, which is incredibly vicious, but it's also they're being subjected to uh, you know, um, shelling, attacks with helicopter gunships, uh, planes. So they're being subjected to massive uh, violence. There's total support for the resistance, uh, total support for... Uh, uh, an overthrow of, of, of the government. There's absolutely no indication on the part of the military and the senior general and the leadership that they are willing in any way to accommodate anything that would resemble uh, a de-escalation. Um, and, and, and I think we'll probably get into it a little bit later, I think the opposition itself, the resistance itself, is still coming together. Um, there, there's still a number of, of uh, challenges that they they are in the in, in the, the you know in the midst of addressing. So engaging in dialogue now, when one side is clearly not demonstrating any willingness to de-escalate, runs the risk of undermining any hope for a future acceptable resolution to the current situation. And an acceptable yeah. resolution to the current situation is one that addresses what the, 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 the populations aspire to. So, Scott, I would like to ask, like, how, um, do you agree or maybe disagree? And yeah, what are the indicators? When is the time has come for diplomacy, for negotiations to, to get into the game? I agree with Charles. Uh, and first, uh, in two points. First, we don't know all the details behind the visit. And so, uh, on the surface, I have concerns about it, but not knowing... Yeah. What messages may have been sent before, after, or during, uh, I have to withhold judgment somewhat. That said, I, I fully agree with Charles that there's been this tendency um, among diplomats and statesmen and stateswomen to think that going in and somehow facilitating talks is the way to go. And in theory, it's true. But as Charles said, this military has shown, has sent so far no signals, at least none that I'm aware of, indicating a willingness to engage in serious talks, end the violence, and make serious political concessions that would have to happen. So my bottom line is it's premature for whether it's Ban Ki-moon or any other international uh, diplomat, statesperson, to go and engage the junta until and unless that junta is sending clear signals that they're serious and looking for a way out of this crisis. Mm. Whenever there are massive atrocities in Myanmar, and we know that a lot of atrocities are happening, 
we read and hear from the diplomatic circles of the UN, the US or the EU about serious concern. And the call for all parties to the conflict to refrain from violence, start an inclusive dialogue, etc. Many people in Myanmar and outside perceive this kind of communication as cynical. Rightly so? I don't know if cynical is the right term, but I understand the frustration with it uh, because statements of concern, you know, after more than two years of horrific violence, viciousness on the part of the junta uh, are rather disappointing for a lot of people. And I think what happens is, is the UN and, inter and different governments around the world, they issue those statements of concern. They may be very genuine. They probably are very genuine in many cases, but it sort of reflects a lack of ideas on what else to do or a lack of willingness to invest in uh, what I think needs to happen, which is more support for the people uh, and for the forces uh, that are seeking to move the country forward. After more than two years of we're with you, we're, we're concerned, uh, it, you need to start think of something new to say uh, and something new to do. Otherwise, it does at least appear or create the perception that it's not serious or that it's cynical. Um, okay, I would like to uh, talk, take maybe a bit a step back and more to the history. So Myanmar's military and most of its governments have historically paid little attention uh, to outside opinion uh, or diplomatic initiatives. So I would say like all governments and the military uh, uh, rulers in the country did not care about what the rest of the world thinks and does more or less. Um, so how much leeway do you think is there anyway for um, diplomats to achieve anything in, in uh, Nepidor uh, or in talks? Uh, and maybe Charles, you can start. Well, I mean, I, th I think it's, it's sort of two sides of, of, a, sim of a similar coin. Uh, um, I, I mean, I, I think there's very little, little space if one only looks at the junta and only engages in the junta. And only approaches the, the this 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 situation through uh, through diplomatic dialogue. I think one one needs to create the condition. One needs to help the conditions emerge that would make it make it sensible for the hunter to understand that they need to dialogue. So so there's there's a sort of a broader environment, a broader context that that that, that needs to be created. I think, you know, in terms of the broader international community, um, I, I think one has to, and, and as, well, one has to uh, appreciate the fact that the world is a bit of a mess, uh, generally. And, and there are many, uh, you know, there are many situations that are demanding international attention. And, and if you look, for example, at Europe, uh, the EU, um, And, and I guess it's also the, the, the case for America. Ukraine is taking a massive amount of bandwidth in terms of internet of attention. So, 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 like Scott, I, I, I think. I mean, these these words of concern, of course, are very important. I, I think there, there. Uh, I think were the statements of concern not to be made, would be dimensionally more important. So it's important to make the the statements of concern. 
But actually what needs to happen is uh, um, um, the willingness to accept new forms of, of intervention, uh, new forms of support um, that will, on the one hand, help the people, you know, uh, support the people who are actually resisting the situation. But then on the other hand, uh, um, create the conditions where, uh, you know, the conditions where the military, the juntas start realizing that the tack they've taken is, is, uh, is, not, is not one that will allow them to attain their, their, their objectives. On the 1st of February, the, the, uh, the Min Online, the senior general, I, I mean, he, he made a, a very, very serious miscalculation. And there's, you know, these generals, the, the officers around them, you know, are, are, are not stupid. So I think they realize, they must realize the consequences of this miscalculation. But then, you know, we'll get back to it. But then on the side, I don't think one should build a strategy on the premise that the, the, the regime is going to implode. I think this this um, idea of creating an environment and not, of course, not only talking to uh, the generals in Epidor, but to create this kind of environment is, I think, very interesting. Um, and I think we have like Germany or Europe is now trying to create this kind of environment to put pressure on Russia, but they are not very successful uh, if you look to some countries uh, in the global south who take a different side. But um, if we talk about this environment, I think like China, India, Thailand would be most important uh, to create this environment to put pressure on, um, on, on Myanmar or to create this environment for talks. So I would like to know, um, and maybe Scott, you can start first, like um, how do you see the position of China, India and Thailand uh, as the neighboring countries to create this kind of diplomatic environment? Where do they stand and how does this work with the international community? Well, so far, all three have been uh, very unhelpful, uh, basically by supporting the junta. Uh, in the case of China, obviously, I, I can't speak for the Chinese authorities, but my sense is they weren't thrilled by this coup, and they're not particularly thrilled with what's been happening ever since. Uh, I think the situation may have been better for China before the coup in terms of advancing its interests. Uh, but they're doing what China normally does. They're dealing with whichever authority is, is in control, at least in the capital. Uh, and, and so I guess being pragmatic from that perspective. Uh, India has been uh, disappointingly very supportive of the junta as well, which I think may come back to, uh, to cost India in the future uh, when the Myanmar people remember Uh, that. And Thailand also uh, very supportive of the coup. Uh, I shouldn't say of the coup, of the junta. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens after the Thai elections on May 14th. Obviously, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what the results will be. Uh, there's at least a possibility of a different government and uh, perhaps uh, a different approach. But if I could, just on the point of creating the environment, in the end, yes, I think there probably do need to be some kind of talks uh, among the various parties in Myanmar, uh, unless the resistance is able to defeat the military on the battlefield, which would be uh, very difficult, or at least take a long time. Uh, but I, I think what a lot of people are overlooking in the international community is that 
those talks will only happen, will only be possible, I think, if the military is weakened to the point that it begins to look for an exit strategy. Mm. Otherwise, frankly, in my view, it's a waste of time to, to engage in diplomacy with the junta. There's a lot of diplomatic work to do with the other parties, but mm -hmm. it, it's all about supporting those forces that are putting maximum pressure on the juntas so that the generals begin to look for an exit strategy. Can I add? add Please. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I, I think there's an inside-outside. Uh, and, and in terms of, uh, you know, support and Western support, of course, I mean, Scott's just talking about the outside, but inside there's some very practical things that can be done, but they demand uh, a proactive engagement of Western donors. I think the key, and, you know, sort of a range of them, I, I think one key one is actually supporting local governance structures. I think what we're seeing is, is of course, you know, the, the ethnic administration, the ethnic armed groups or ethnic resistance groups, but armed groups is sort of a broader uh, uh, grouping. I mean, they, they've had administrations in the past. Their administrations are much more, um, have, have developed significantly since the coup. Uh, there are a, lot of, a, a number of these ethnic armed organizations are not only providing support to their own populations, but they're taking care of significant number of IDPs, a significant number of CDMs, uh, uh, civil disobedient movement people. Um, they're integrating into their health and education systems, people who are coming in, but they have very limited resources. And, and right now, donors are very much focused on humanitarian aid, which is correct, they should, but humanitarian aid is not going to help these, uh, these structures. There needs to be a willingness to provide support to these local governance networks and, and, and systems. A few donors are doing it, but it's, it's, it, it entails a significant mind shift on the part of donors. On the one, it's taking, well, the main mind shift is moving away from output and outcomes and being will, willing to support processes that you're allowing administrations to function, which entails taking political risk. There's an element of political risk that donors have to be willing to take, which I think the situation justifies, you know. Also coming out of that type of support, you need different forms of financial accountability. So that's one action that I think is mm. essential to undertake. The second part of support, the, the violence that the populations are being subjected to is horrendous. You know? And I think there needs to be immediate support to help populations protect themselves. Uh, and so we're talking about uh, bunkers. Uh, and it, it needs to be money, technology, and equipment to allow populations to protect themselves from, from the, these, uh, these bombings. I, I think there's also need for anti-aircraft capabilities, and it's not stingers. You know, everybody talks about But uh, I spent some time with some people on the border, uh, the Free Burma Rangers, uh, talking to them. There, there's some off-the-shelf conventional weaponry that could be used or could be given to, to the, 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 the forces that would help protect them from these, the, the, these aircraft attacks. And then the third is, is, uh, was the absence of coordination among the international community. And, and I, I think there needs to be a greater coordinated effort to support the resistance. Uh, you know, Myanmar has a history, people have a history, 
their historical antagonisms. And I think there needs to be a support to the opposition, the political opposition, the resistance to help them move in a way that really creates the most inclusive form of resistance possible to deal with the military. And, and my question would be like, how do diplomats come into the field now? I, I, I don't know. For example, maybe if we look to the US, there has been the Burma Act. There is a lot of hope, what I have heard from Myanmar. A lot of people have a lot of hope related to this Burma Act. Uh, could this help to work with this? And could this really support some new kind of, like, I don't know, initiative? What do you think, Scott? Well, the Burma Act, I think, reflected the sense of the U.S. Congress that the U.S. needed to be more supportive of the people and the pro-democracy forces in Myanmar. There's no actual money attached to it. It authorizes assistance, but there's no money. So the key is what happens in the appropriations process in terms of actual money. But on the diplomatic side, I think that's separate from the Burma Act. Mm. I think there is, I fully agree with Charles' point about more international coordination to support and uh, support, for example, local governance structures and the like. I agree fully with all of that. There is this emerging, I don't, it's not quite unified yet resistance, but it's moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of the most positive things I think we've, we've seen in the country for a long time. There's a lot of dynamism there. And the international community should be thinking not only of the current crisis, but also down the road, helping to create conditions for any future government to have a better chance uh, of succeeding. To get to the point, though, it would be useful for whether it's the U.S., the U.K., or Japan, or another government, I don't think the UN can do it, to lead, you know, we used to call it the Friends of Burma group. I mean, there's different things you could call it, but basically a group of countries that have similar views about supporting the pro-democracy forces and to coordinate better both on sanctions to squeeze the military and on both humanitarian and non-humanitarian assistance to help the population and to help the pro-democracy forces. I think there's a need there. There's a bit of a vacuum um, I have called uh, for the, the U.S. to name a special envoy, uh, not to engage with a junta, but to work on this sort of thing. And just to be clear, when I, I made it very clear when I suggested that, I'm not suggesting any particular person I specifically suggested probably should be an active duty uh, diplomat. But it could be another country. It doesn't have to be the U.S., And can I, I, I yeah. agree? I, I mean, in a way, you know, for those of us who've been operating in these contexts, it's, it's a no-brainer <laughs> that you need some sort of coordination mechanism. Um, I, I, I think the Friends of, of Burma, Friends of Myanmar is one approach. But I, I, I think what's, what's, um, there's something, that, there's another dimension that needs to be brought to this effort in part because the West is actually preoccupied with many other conflicts. So, so, so in a way, you need to broaden it. And in that regard, I, I, I think this, this initial idea, the, the inclusive humanitarian forum idea, is a, is a good idea in terms of the construct, the construction. So in a way, you, you, you need to have a coordination forum that, that also includes the neighbors, Uh, um, so you would have the neighbors plus the West and, 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 and that reflection. 
you could envisage. Uh, I, I agree with Scott uh, that that I, I think right now the UN as an organization is is out of the picture. Uh, there there isn't. There's just so little interest in New York on Myanmar that you can't imagine that the body will have has the ability to engage. But but you could envisage, for example, a co-chaired. Uh, uh, platform with uh, both uh, the UN Special Envoy and the ASEAN Special Envoy. Yeah, I think it's 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 essential to try and and you know create a body that that is representative of different countries' interests or different countries interested in Myanmar to be able to to discuss and and at least ensure some level of coherence. So. It's basically a bit, a bit about the question who to, who what wants to take the lead because obviously nobody is doing it at the moment really or wants to take the lead. But my question would be, with, for example, if it is like Scott mentioned, like there would be someone maybe from the US or from the so-called West taking up, don't you think that this will also like raise mistrust from China again and that there is this always this big possibility that China would say, oh, the West is now encroaching, coming closer in Myanmar again, we have to. So that is why I asked about like the three neighboring countries who don't seem to be very eager uh, to have like outside or Westerners uh, to, to play a major role. So how do you assess this difficult or tricky balance you would have to strike in order to make this work? I mean, it's called a challenge. <laughs> But but uh, but that's exactly the construction you need to come up with. Yeah, I yeah. I agree. I mean, I think it's not ideal for the U.S. to lead. Um, ideally, it's you know Indonesia as ASEAN chair and an, and an interested uh, government that has shown uh, a reasonable amount of sympathy for the for the pro democracy forces and quite critical of the coup. The trouble with asking the immediate neighbors to do it is they're all too pro junta. And I, I don't see, I'm not, I don't, not saying they should be excluded, but so far they haven't shown much willingness. I do think there is a risk and, and some concern about some Chinese officials perhaps seeing the, the U.S. support for the pro-democracy movement as a somehow a U.S. is making this a U.S.-China issue. It's not a U.S.-China issue. It shouldn't be a U.S.-China issue. Any government that comes out of this, uh, hopefully democratic, I would assume, and I'm pretty confident, is going to want to have good relations with China. And it should. This is not at all uh, the U.S. trying to you know, pull Myanmar away from China. But to avoid that perception and that risk, I think it would be ideal for, again, an Indonesia uh, mm. or, you know, who knows, maybe it's maybe it's. Maybe it's South Korea. I, I don't know uh, to to uh, be very involved or take the lead on this. Maybe we should talk briefly about as well the ASEAN and and as you you mentioned Indonesia, but the ASEAN and there was this five point consensus, which yeah I would say did not lead to really anything. So what what is your hopes or what are the difficulties with the ASEAN uh, from from how would you see like for a diplomatic. Um, initiative in this this case? Well, the five-point consensus ran into two problems. First, it ran into the problem we talked about earlier about the junta being unwilling to do anything uh, positive. 
And second, it was based on the assumption that the, this was sort of a political disagreement between uh, two parties that both had significant support within the country. So it was based on a more traditional framework. Uh, and so I think it wasn't realistic in that sense. But the, the fundamental problem right now for ASEAN is it's divided. And since it's a consensus-based organization, it has to go with a lowest common denominator approach. Now, there is room for Indonesia. And I know uh, Foreign Minister Mars Retno Marsudi has, has said they're engaging with a lot of different actors inside Myanmar. Uh, but I think Indonesia as chair has some ability to do things not representing all of ASEAN, but as ASEAN chair. We've seen Thailand, which is not the chair, host meetings of a handful of countries on Myanmar, which is quite interesting. Uh, so certainly Indonesia could do the same and inviting hopefully countries that have shown a serious interest in a resolution that actually addresses the fundamental issues of the country, not some superficial band-aid uh, to say that there is an agreement. That, that is the challenge. I, I mean, is finding that, that, uh, that construction. Uh, and, and I agree that neighboring states are... Uh, well, I mean, there are too many interests, geopolitical interests. Yeah. Um, so I would like to come back to a point uh, we mentioned or we talked briefly about uh, before. So um, you said that uh, your perception is that there is um, the opposition is creating more unity and that they are, is, uh, they are coming together. So I, th I thought that there is still a pretty deep division between uh, the groups inside, even inside uh, the NUG, but we have the NUG and the NUCC. Uh, the whole process of a new constitution is not going forward. Um, and you mentioned like we should support local government structures, um, like of the different ethnic armed organizations who could, but um, wouldn't that in a way lead to um, maybe even in the in the end to a kind of a balkanization of the country, like saying, okay, we create small pockets of a functioning state and this will like draw apart the different parts in the end. Don't you see this as a, or maybe, maybe you see this as the solution or is it the problem? How do you assess this uh, problematic? Um, and, and yeah, these are maybe two questions. Like one thing is like, do you see greater unity and is this, who is the right person to address in the opposition if you want to engage as a state actor, as a diplomat? First question. And second question, if you have this uh, strengthening of the pockets or the working parts in the country, don't you support in a way a balkanization? Yeah, I, I mean, the first, first thing I would say is, is and, and taking up something Scott said at the very beginning, I, I think it's, you know, I think it's, it's important to understand how how fundamental uh what the fundamental changes that emerged after the first of uh february uh, of the coup you know the the fact that the people went into the streets down the young went into the streets the, the, their utilization of social media how they transcended many of the divisions that existed before the 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 you know the the these tensions between the bama majority the ethnic armed groups the ethnic groups that that we've seen throughout the history. So, so those those are you know the, those are it's a it the, there was a fundamental transformation of the socio-political landscape of Myanmar that has to be uh, you know has 
I mean, protected is pretentious because it implies that we can, but but has to be acknowledged and pushed forward. I mean, what what I think we do see, of course, are are old tensions that aren't going to disappear overnight. You know, the the, the and so and so for me, it's it's this encouragement of uh, you know engaging engaging with all of the forces and engaging in a way where one encourages them to work together you know and and to help them i mean to help them understand that some of the age old historical cleavages that they bring in or or perceptions are actually no longer relevant to make them understand that they're no longer relevant and and also to bring out what we do see i, I mean there's a tremendous level of of solidarity. I mean, one must never overstate it to a point where you become delusional. But but there have been very clear um, uh, um, uh, demonstrations of solidarity between between groups, between the ethnic armed organizations, the CDMs, the, the internally displaced, and stuff like that. On your second question, that's exactly why I think you need to have a coherent, uh, um, some sort of 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 forum where the international community comes together because you do need to guarantee or you do need to contain the centrifugal forces that Myanmar is currently going through. You know, by definition, you're seeing the emergence of of greater autonomous areas. My my point is I'm not saying support local governments. I'm saying support local governance it's the ability of individuals to work together to deal with their their problems and and i and one of the you know the points i've been trying to make to a number of donors is you need to support local governance one because people i mean you're you're not creating them they're doing it and they're even doing it in the central part of the country in the bamar areas a lot more tentative tepid you need to support them because they exist and they're resisting but you need to support them also because you're by supporting them, you're allowing to emerge sort of a bottom-up contribution to a future federal state. But you also need to in, to have a policy of support towards all of these entities to ensure that the country does not fragment, does not balkanize. You know that you 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 need to have this this longer-term vision of you know. And, and again, you know, it's pretentious to think that we can impose or we're, we're leading in anything. But there needs to be sort of a model in the mind of the international community of what it should be encouraging in terms of the way forward in the emergence of, of uh, some sort of governance model for, for Myanmar. I think were the international community not to engage, were, then, then, yeah, then I think we, we do see the emergence, not necessarily of balkanization a la former Yugoslavia, but the emergence of very autonomous economic poles where, where the, the politics becomes secondary. Do you agree or do you have another take on this question, like, like uh, how to keep it together or maybe not to keep it together? Yeah, I, I agree with Charles on both points. One, I think we have seen significant shifts in attitudes uh, among a lot of people in Myanmar toward other ethnic groups. But like any process, I mean, as Charles said, you can't change everything overnight. So it's a work in progress. There's a lot, there's still divisions, there's still mistrust. It's a matter of chipping away at it. And I think there's been progress, but it's going to take time and a lot of effort. Uh, so on that point, on the local governance, I also agree. I think 
most people in Myanmar, even before the coup, talked about people who were following these things talked about the need for some sort of federalism, decentralization, uh, local authority. And of course, the idea of some levels of autonomy, um, you know, go way back to the Panglong Agreement of 1947 and even before. So the emergence of these local uh, government actors, governance actors is important. It also reflects the fact that this is really a bottom up uh, movement. I think it is important to support them uh, and and see the development of, of capable uh, local governance. And I also agree with Charles. I mean, in the end, it's going to be up to the people of Myanmar at the political level to find ways to overcome the mistrust and work out arrangements that uh, that encourage all the different communities to want to be a part of this union. Mm. You know, the outside community can't do that. Uh, we, we can support and facilitate what these sorts of things, but it's, it's really up to the Myanmar leaders. And I think the NUG, you asked, who do you engage with in the resistance? I don't think there's a one person or one entity, mm. certainly the NUG, but also, also some of the key ethnic resistance groups. But I think it's also important that we not just I hate to use it, say it this way, forgive me, but it's not just about talking to the men with guns. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of civil society actors, independent media, and, and others who um, uh, the international community should be talking to. But I, like, I would like to ask, like um, you said, and I agree, of course, in the end, uh, the people of Myanmar have to, in a way, find the way they would like to go forward. But um, sometimes, um, how do I say, like it helps if you have this outside look or someone from the outside maybe supporting or giving some uh, help. But I think we agree that it is more or less lacking. So, so would you say that that the international community would or bears a lot of responsibility if this uh, will not work out? I think it's giving too much credit to the international community. <laughs> I wish it were true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I. I agree. It, it reminds me of, you know, people who would say, oh, the international community, you know, failed because of the Rohingya crisis. True in the sense that the international community wasn't able to stop it. But yeah. that's different than saying the international community caused it. It was caused by Myanmar actors, chiefly the military, but there were plenty of others. And so I think, I think, you know, My sense, and obviously I can't speak for people of Myanmar, my sense is they don't want the foreigners coming in telling them what to do, and I don't blame them. Uh, there's no shortage of people out there giving them advice. Um, I, I think, uh, going back to Charles' point about a coordinated international effort, it, it, it's important to be able to respond to requests mm. from people within Myanmar and institutions within Myanmar. Hey, we could use some technical help on how to do this or that rather than, and avoiding this tendency that people have, particularly in the West, to sort of say, here's what you need to do. Mm. Maybe I'll just also add that, that um, I mean, I, 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 I totally understand the, the, the logic and, and the, the, the um, sort of the flow of the argument, you know, to to blame the international community for, for uh, or to, you know, it's this bad conscience thing. But, the, but it's, I think it's important to understand that uh, it doesn't work on the international community. That, that, that this idea, you know, that, that they will partly be responsible. One, I think we argued that 
it's giving them a bit more credit. But the other is the international community actually, I mean, <laughs> this amorphous body, which we call the international community, I, I actually copes pretty well with, uh, with embarrassment. Huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, failure is not something that phases them too much. Huh? And that's why I think one needs to be much more proactive and, and start, you know, the, the, the whole rhetoric, the discussion, you should, you shouldn't, all that. It's, it's, it's going to be water on the back of a duck. I think what's much more important is to say, listen, these are opportunities. They have to be seized now. And this is what needs to happen in order for these opportunities to seize. And for me, it's the, the people are resisting. You know, you have an emergent, and I agree with Scott, it's not new. It happened before. It's built on something that happened before, that existed before. You have local governance structures, you know. They have to be supported. We have lessons to learn from failures to support local governance, uh, the emergence of local governance, and for example, Syria with uh, with the local council. So, so, you know, this is not something completely new for the international community. We need to support it. And it, in, it entails a significant shift in approach and a willingness to take political risk. And the second is, is um, you know, uh, uh, one, one needs to help the people deal with uh, the, uh, the, the, um, the helicopter gunships and, and the rest. There's no way around it. You know, uh, uh, if you want, it, it's part of the same package because... The, what they're being subjected to is is uh, is horrendous. Okay, so um, maybe we come back a little bit to the start where we also already mentioned that at the moment the international community is quite distracted. Now there's the Ukraine war, now Sudan is happening. So a lot of things uh, draw the attention to. Um, and you said like they, they have to take a political risk. So... Um, what would a diplomatic initiative look like or how can we convince the international community to take the risk? So if you, what would be your like one, two, three ideas, each of you like to make this happen? Because it's obviously not happening so far. Yeah, I don't know that there's a recipe here that I can offer. Uh, I think Maybe not a recipe, but maybe some ingredients. Sure. Um, you know, you would like to see... Uh, foreign governments pay more attention to this, but just me telling them to pay more attention to it is is uh, not going to do it. I mean, part of the challenge for the NUG and the resistance is to, under very difficult circumstances, to do a better job of making their case internationally, including to the media. Mm. Uh, I mean, look at Zelensky in Ukraine. It's sort of a brilliant level. Uh, and you can't really expect the resistance in, in Myanmar to be able to do that. But I think something, some a campaign in the media and elsewhere offering the vision and the path forward for not only the NUG, but the NUG plus hmm. the various elements in the resistance. I know they're aware of this. They're working at it. And as I said, they're operating under very difficult circumstances. But I they think. don't have that vision. Yet, I think I think they're working on it, uh, and you know the federal democracy charter is is the first step in that vision. They're not going to be able to lay out a detailed blueprint of federalism. I don't think they need to do that, but I think doing more to communicate the vision that they have come up with, even if it's perhaps incomplete, is one. And then second, I I would love to see some of the governments that 
care about the situation, seriously care about it, uh, going particularly to Indonesia and talking about encouraging Indonesia in addition to what it's already doing in quiet diplomacy to perhaps take more of a lead in, in bringing together some other interested parties. I, it doesn't have to be Indonesia, but that seems to me the, the most logical uh, country to do it. Who are these governments? Could you name some? Well, it's, it's a lot of countries in the West. I, I would like to think it would be Japan, uh, Australia, uh, Korea, um, you know, some members of ASEAN, certainly. Uh, I'd like to see more. Uh, and there's, there's no doubt others as well. Okay. And what would you say, Charles, are, could be possible ingredients to, for a receipt? Well, I, I, I think, I mean, my, you know, with your question, I, I think for me right now, the, the problem is how. How would you do it? And, and, and in the absence, I, I think this, this absence of some sort of international forum is critical uh, in terms of, of helping, uh, helping the opposition think through, not even think through what, but it get, sharing with them sort of insights that could help them develop their, their, their vision. And I agree with, with Scott. They have a, I mean, they're, they're, there's a very clear vision that emerged after the 1st of February of a new form of, 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 of Myanmar. In terms of what, I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty straightforward. I, I mean, it's explaining that what is being asked about, what's being asked for Myanmar has been done elsewhere in terms of supporting local governance structures. In, I, I think it's, you know, I think there's a need to take a step back and, and get donors to understand that Myanmar is no longer an outlier in terms of its construction. That there's this study that was just done that, that by um, the, the um, uh, CIC, New York University and Chatham House, that found that close to 50% of the people living in conflict situations were living in situations where the authorities, where, where the, the legitimacy of the authorities was being questioned. So it's, it's you know, th this, 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 this thing that is Myanmar is no longer an outlier. We're looking at a new form of, uh, of, of challenge for the international community. So, so to get them to understand, you're not only doing it for Myanmar, you need to do it for Myanmar, but it's actually got very useful uh, implications for elsewhere. So first is, it's, not, it's nothing new. It's been done elsewhere. It's been done in Afghanistan. It's being done again in Afghanistan elsewhere. Secondly, to explain, it's not that costly. You know, uh, you're, you're the taking the political, well, you need to take the political risk, but, but there are ways, because it's been done elsewhere, there are ways of at least guaranteeing some sort of accountability for the money that's come in. So it's not uh, costly in that sense. And then the third is to try and explain to governments that they can argue to their parliaments that it's actually the protection of investments, That engaging with local civil society, engaging with, with local governance structures is protecting the previous investments that these governments have made in Myanmar. And, and that's why I, I totally agree with, with Scott. One should not only focus on the key sort of armed and political actors. One should look at civil society and, and, and engage in supporting with civil society. But, but, you know, so, so it's, You know, I, I, I think the, the, for me, the, the, real, the real challenge is how do you do it? You know, where, where can you do it? Because 
I mean, we try with individual governments, but they're, you know, unfortunately, governments today, Norwegians and elsewhere, they're very reticent to, uh, to expose themselves. So they're much more comfortable if there's a group. But right now, that grouping doesn't exist. But were the grouping to exist, I think there are some very, very clear uh, steps, some very, very clear arguments. There, there are some very clear things that could be uh, done. Maybe I should have asked that before, but by the way, what is the risk we are talking about? Like, wh what kind of risk do you take for a government like Indonesia or Japan or South Korea if they say we, we, we would take the lead? What is the real risk? Well, not taking the lead. I, I'm talking about taking the risk of local, lo supporting local governance structure. Yeah, yeah but, but, but what, what kind of risk is that? Well, it's it's the fact that they're they're not all clean, you know. I, I mean, the one dimension okay. where we're not really looking at that is is how uh, you know sectors of the economy in Myanmar have become criminalized because they're okay. it's an open space. Okay. So 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 it's and it's it's basically it's basically getting governments to accept to take the risk of having to explain what they did to their parliaments. That's the risk that they uh, they, they, they they need to, to and and so it's it's the process is getting them to understand you can do it. <laughs> There are good arguments that you can make, but but no, I, I mean I, I think on the ground, you know, war is never clean. It is a risk, but I, you know, when I was in Myanmar uh, from 2016 to 2020, USAID, for example, was doing uh, funding of assistance programs with the uh, Karen Health Department. Yeah, you know, under the KNU. In fact, at one point, we even did joint training with KNU health workers and the government, current government, state government health workers. So there's already been uh, work to do. Obviously, you you do what you can to minimize the risks. But I, I would just add, Charles added a really important point about these international criminal networks. I mean, the military. Mm. And aftermath has taken made a situation that was already problematic and made it much worse in terms of sort of lawless areas that international criminal uh, actors have moved into. Yet another threat mm. to the region and and to the uh, global community, and another reason why people should be taking this mm. uh, crisis much more seriously. Okay, so yeah, thank you very much for joining uh, Myanmar in the Potchell and sharing your insights. So I, I think uh, the whole thing or one major point is like to convince uh, the international community or at least some states or some governments uh, to take action and to form a kind of a body. And for that also would be needed to have a kind of a clear vision from the side of the opposition and the NUG so that the that they maybe also see why they are taking the risk. Because like to make a federal country of whatever kind the Myanmar people want like to, to really come uh, into being. So yeah, thank you uh, very much for uh, sharing your thoughts and for being here. And to our uh, users, thank you for listening to Myanmar in a Potshell. Please tune in again next time.